Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. Taking our Bibles this morning and turning to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8. And we'll be looking this morning at the first 11 verses of John, chapter 8. John tells us, of course, why he's writing this Gospel. He does that in John, chapter 20, and verse 31, when he says, These are written that you might believe that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. Spiritual life comes through Jesus Christ. The book to which we've turned this morning, John chapter 8 and verse 1 to 11, John is helping us to understand how we can believe that Jesus is the Christ. And this morning, we look at a section that I've entitled, The Divine Master Meets the Defiled Maid. The divine master meets the defiled maid. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, as he came into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us, that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said unto them, He that's without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which had heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into His Word this morning. Father, this morning I pray you give us wisdom as we consider this story so important to our understanding of the doctrine of sin, and more importantly, the doctrine of forgiveness. The doctrine of new days and new hope that's given through Jesus Christ, the one who alone can forgive us and commission us to go and sin no more. So use your Word this morning for our instruction that we might be a people with a message of hope to those even in our community who today find themselves hopeless. We'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. If you carry a New American Standard Version of the New Testament, you'll find the passage that I read in today's Scripture reading set off in brackets with a little note by John chapter 7 and verse 53 that says, John 7 verse 53 to John 8 verse 11 is not found in most of the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. If you carry an RSV or Revised Standard Version, there's a note that says, the most ancient manuscripts do not contain, or omit rather, John 7.53 to John 8, verse 11. The Ryrie Study Bible that I carry has a note in this section, and it says, this story though probably authentic, is omitted in many manuscripts and may not have been originally part of this gospel. Well, someone may be asking at this point, if 
this be the case, why is Pastor Phelps turning our attention to this passage? And after all, it's left out of the oldest Greek manuscripts. Some Greek manuscripts contain a note saying that the passage is questionable. Eleven of the manuscripts place this passage at the end of the Gospel of John, and one manuscript places the incident in Luke chapter 22, uh, just after verse 38. I'm sure that's very interesting to all of you. But knowing all these problems, I still open boldly to John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. So let me share just briefly why. I open boldly here because I'm comfortable saying that I don't believe that the oldest manuscripts are necessarily the best manuscripts, and I prefer to hold what is found by the majority of the manuscripts, and in the majority of the manuscripts, John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11 is certainly found. I agree with F.B. Meyer, who made this observation. F.B. Meyer said, there's no possibility of accounting for the existence of this passage save on the supposition that the incident really took place. It reveals in our Savior's character a wisdom so profound, a tenderness to sinners so delicate, a hatred of sin so intense, an insight into human hearts so searching that it's impossible to suppose the mind of man could have conceived or the hand of man invented this most touching story. If ever there was a generation that needs to hear the message of John 8, verses 1 through 11, it's our generation. Sad that this message would ever even be clouded by discussion of manuscripts and acceptance or omission in various versions of the Bible as they're translated today. This is a passage that we need to pay careful and specific attention to. Why? Surveys surveys indicate that among American clergymen, there's a profound problem of moral failure. In fact, surveys indicate that something between 14% on the low side to 31% on the high side of American clergymen have done something that would cause them to be morally unfit for the office in which they serve. Not long ago, a survey was conducted of 277 Southern Baptist pastors, and it indicated that 14% of them were morally unfit for the position in which they were serving. While those statistics are staggering among the clergy in America, They're even worse among those who call themselves Christians who are not serving as clergymen. In fact, they're even worse than that among those who have no profession of Christ at all. You see, ours is a society, listen, ours is a society that is steaming with sensuality. We're living in a cauldron of corruption. Not too many years ago, our White House, which was built to be the home of America's first family was turned into a house of ill repute. The debauchery of our culture has been sprayed upon the White House in the colors of the rainbow that ought to remind us of God's grace. American embassies today around the world fly alongside the American flag, the LGBT flag, as our nation peddles perversity rather than liberty and justice for all. Sociologists are concerned. They're so concerned that they're asking important questions. They're asking, will society's lewdness in educational institutions in particular, will it corrupt our children to the point where they're fundamentally confused and become so haunted by unanswered moral questions that they can never find peace? After all, 
We have in American classrooms today classes on human sexuality that so dehumanize those who are in the classes that we find a generation at risk. And that generation is seen to be so at risk that violence is increasing and depression is increasing and suicide is increasing among the youngest in our nation. And we ask the question, as we ought to ask, has our moral laxity caused such a confusion that the abnormal is now being called normal and the conscious have been so corrupted that people don't know where to turn to find purity? So let me say again, when we turn to John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, we're turning to a passage that everyone living in America today needs to pay particular attention to. There are lessons for us to find in John chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, or John chapter 8, rather, verses 1 to 11, that can't be omitted from those who would develop a theology of sin and a theology of forgiveness. Here in this passage, we see the wonderful Savior meeting a wicked sinner. We see a divine master as he meets a defiled maiden. Jesus is speaking in this passage to a woman whose life literally is hanging in the balance as she hears from him wonderful words of hope, forgiving words from the only source of forgiveness. Jesus says to this woman, taken in adultery, taken in the very act, neither do I forgive thee, or neither do I, rather, neither do I um, condemn thee. Go and sin no more. If you find yourself this morning in need of a new beginning, if you find yourself this morning feeling trapped by the entanglements of your sin, if you find yourself this morning with a heart that's despairing over sin that has dragged you down, or perhaps this morning you need to know how to respond or how to minister to someone who's chosen an alternative lifestyle, or who's found themselves in the midst of dreadful sin. Well, there's a promise in John chapter 8, a little bit further in this chapter, the 22nd verse of this chapter, Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And this morning, as we look at John 8, verses 1 to 11, we confront the truth of God's Word and what blessings we discover. I want to share with you five thoughts as we study the story of the day that the divine master met the defiled maiden. The first thought may seem to be obvious. We discover in this passage the corruption of sin. If ever there's a passage that really reveals the pervasive nature of sin, here's the passage. The setting of this story that the Spirit of God provides for us is ever so important for us to consider. We need to be looking at this passage and asking, when did this happen and where did this happen? Where was the Lord on this day that this horrible act of adultery was revealed. And we discover immediately that this incident happened during the Feast of the Tabernacles. The context of this passage began way back in chapter 7, verse 2. Now Jesus was at the Jews' Feast of the Tabernacles when it was at hand. The Feast of Tabernacles, as we've discovered, was one of the three pilgrimage feasts that brought the nation together so that they could remember the goodness of the Lord. And as they came together for the Feast of Tabernacles, for seven straight days, the pilgrims who were at that feast would watch as a golden pitcher was taken to the Pool of Siloam, was carried back and poured as oblation on the altar by the priest, and they would rejoice together as they sang their hosannas. 
It was a feast to commemorate, after all, how God had cared for the children of Israel in the wilderness, and so they constructed tabernacles and lived in those tents for a week. And they also celebrated the harvest that God had given to them. This feast happened, this feast of tabernacles happened in the fall of the year. And so Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. And while many were celebrating, as they ought to, the harvest feast of Israel, while many were celebrating, there were others who were secretly sinning. While some were celebrating in the sunshine, watching as the water was carried up from the pool of Siloam, others were slinking off into the shadows, involved in shameful sin. This incident occurred during the Feast of the Tabernacles, and this incident occurred in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yes, Jerusalem. You can hear the word shalom, right, in the word Jerusalem. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. Jerusalem was a city purposely set on a hill. It was to be a light to the Gentile nations. It was to be known as Zion, God's holy city. The streets of the city of Jerusalem, after all, were filled with the priest as they wore their long robes. The sacrifices were brought there to the temple where they're being offered. The people there were saying their prayers as they listened to the Levitical choirs singing the anthems that King David had written. Jerusalem was supposed to be a holy city dedicated to the one true holy God. But as we open our Bibles to John chapter 8, a woman is taken in adultery during the Holy Week in God's holy city. She was taken in the very act. Now we ought to ask as we read this passage, so where was the man who was taken with her? It seems that those who were involved in this incident were more willing to make the woman's sin public than the man's. We read nothing of him. His identity is kept a secret. And so immediately there are a lot of lessons that we ought to be learning. So let me just share a few of them. We ought to be learning that the most heinous sin can happen in the most holy place. And even those who know the law of God and live among the people of God can be involved in the worst kinds of sins. And it's not unusual for a religious community to hypocritically focus on the sin of one while conveniently overlooking the sins of others. It seems like religious communities have this capacity to fixate on the obvious one involved and caught in sin, while focusing on the most vulnerable and kind of giving a free pass to those who are more accepted within that community. In John chapter 8, we come face to face with the corruption of sin. And we're reminded from the time of the fall, even to the present, sin has impacted every place in our universe. Romans chapter 1 reminds us that the whole creation is groaning together under the burden of sin. Every place has been affected and every person has been affected by sin. Whether those people who gather together are irreligious or religious, every person has been affected. God himself spoke of the pervasive pernicious problem of sin. He looked on the world, after all, in Genesis chapter 6, before he sent the flood, and he said in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, 
that he saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Since dreadful sin was uncovered in the holy city of Jerusalem during the celebration of the Holy Week, we ought to understand that we can never completely be void of the presence of sin while living in this creation, in this dispensation. We should never be surprised when sin shows its ugly head in our home, in our community, in our government, or in our church. Sin knows no boundaries. Even the most angelic expression can be hiding the most depraved of hearts, right? Jeremiah tells us in chapter 17 and verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And this morning, we need to realize that God wants us to be honest. He wants us to be honest. Because if we say, 1 John 1 and verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we lie. And the truth is not in us. God wants me to be honest and you to be honest. Honest about our community. Honest about our private thoughts. Honest. And so we ask today, are you weighed down? Are you burdened by a load of sin? Are there skeletons in your closet that you hope that no one ever discovers? Be reminded that the corruption of sin is a cancer to the soul, and a single cell that's tolerated will metastatize and will flow through every part of our being and cause even greater challenges. It threatens everything it touches. This passage tells us of the corruption of sin. And it reminds us also of the crisis that sin inevitably brings. John 8 and verse 1, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. A new day was dawning in the holy city of Jerusalem. Jesus spent the night, and now he comes back. Perhaps he crossed over the Mount of Olives to Bethany and spent the night with Mary and her sister Martha and their brother Lazarus, we don't know. The scripture writer doesn't tell us. Perhaps the people in the city of Jerusalem thought he'd gone away back to his ministry in the region of Galilee. Perhaps it was unexpected that he comes there, but as he comes there, the Bible tells us in John 8 and verse 2 that he sat down and he taught them. This is what would normally happen when Jesus would teach. He would sit down and people would gather as he began to teach. But then in verse 3, something terrible happened. The scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. Now folks, I don't think we can begin to imagine the shame and the fear and the absolute horror of the scene that is painted for us here. Yet we should not be surprised by this scene. You see, sin will always lead to a crisis. Sin will always lead to a crisis. Now that crisis may be delayed, but it will never be denied. Sin always leads to a crisis. Numbers 32 reminds us in verse 23, and be sure your sins, can you finish it with me? We'll find you out. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 warns, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, can you finish that? That shall he also reap. As sure as the law of gravity, there is a law the law of sin, the law of sowing and reaping. And that law warns that every sin 
even so secretly committed, will ultimately be uncovered. Every sin will be uncovered. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 reminds us, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5 says, that He, speaking of Christ, will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. You see, all things are naked and open under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And I read in this passage that sometimes the crisis of sin is very public. The religious leaders drag the adulteress out into the open. Verse 3 says they set her in the midst. You can almost feel the hot lights. The infrared burning of the sunshine upon her soul as she sat there in this place. Just as we discover that sometimes the crisis of sin is public, we ought to always be reminded that always the crisis of sin is painful. They said to him in verse 4, Master, this woman was taken in adultery. The very act. And even the strongest among us are made weak when our sins are publicly exposed. Did she tremble? Did she cry? Was she angry? Did she accuse? Did she try to make an excuse? Was she lobbying for a cultural change to accept adultery on the feast days? We don't know. Sinners respond, you know, in different ways when crisis comes. Carrie's parents were in church when the crisis came to their home. Immediately after a church service, they were summoned to the hospital. They were called to the hospital being told that they didn't know at the hospital whether Carrie would live or die. You see, Carrie had been living a secret life, a double life, and now trying to hide her sin, she had gone in to remove the little child that was in her womb, and she was hemorrhaging. Her family members were called to the hospital. Her life was in jeopardy. Little did Carrie's parents know that the crisis that they were facing at the moment would become an opportunity that God had sent. You see, Proverbs 28 says in verse 13, He that covereth his sins will not prosper. But whoso confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Uncovering sin is the first step toward cleansing that God wants to give. Has the Lord brought you perhaps into this service this morning to have you wrestle with the sin that's so burdensome to your soul that so needs to be forgiven? Has the Lord brought you into this room this morning so that your conscience could be pricked and cry out? And folks, deal with it today. Don't delay. Sin will always lead to a crisis. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 that every idle word that man shall speak, he'll give account thereof in the day of judgment. All things are naked and open under the eyes, you see, of him with whom we have to do. And notice with me in this passage that this crisis, one would suppose, would lead to a condemnation. And the condemnation of sin is made evident in this passage. Sinners seek typically to justify their sinning. They blame their circumstances. They blame others. They blame the devil, and sometimes they even blame God. God, after all, must have made me with this particular vulnerability. I'm kind of wired this way, they seem to reason. But placing blame elsewhere will never eliminate the condemnation of sin. 
In the passage to which we've turned in John chapter 8, there's a twofold condemnation of sin. The first condemnation that we sin we want to, of sin that we want to look at, we want to look at very quickly. I find here that there's a hypocritical condemnation of the legalist. The hypocritical condemnation of the legalist is what many people are very aware of when it comes to dealing with the topic of sin. We read that the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery the very act. Her accusers were hypocrites. Why are they bringing her and not bringing her partner? Her accusers were harsh. They were self-righteous. They knew nothing of the grace and mercy of God. They knew nothing of the instructions that God has given to his true people when he says in Galatians 6 and verse 1, If a man be overtaken with a fault, you with your spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering also yourself, lest you likewise be tempted. We should never be surprised by the joy, the absolute joy, that some people seem to find when uncovering the sins of others. When bringing the pain of someone else's sin out into the public. Our world, you see, is filled with those who find specks in other people's eyes while failing to see the log in their own. Such a group is gathered now around the Lord. Sadly, the legalist who most vocally condemn the other sinners, listen, sadly, a lot of times, they congregate in churches. They point out the debauchery of the LGBT lifestyle. They find it heinous to believe that so many people have been involved in adulterous relationships. They speak, as well they should, of the horrors of addictions and child abuse and alcoholism. But then they tolerate gossip and materialism and anger and growingly even pornography. Beware of the condemnation of the legalist. Legalistic condemnation often shelters a heart that's itself full of sin. Shaming other sinners, hoping that your own will never be uncovered. But there is in this passage also the condemnation of God's holy law. And that condemnation needs to be considered. You see, the legalists were accurate when in verse 5, they quoted the law. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? They asked Jesus. They were right. Exodus chapter 20 clearly says, thou shalt not commit adultery. They were right. That's the seventh commandment. In Leviticus chapter 10, we read that those who break this commandment are to die under the Old Testament. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10 and Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 22, both passages say the same thing. That those caught in adultery who have been committing adultery are under the death penalty according to the Old Testament Mosaic law. Now, the children of Israel in this particular context are not living with the authority to practice the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was practiced within the theocracy of Israel, but they were under a different rule. They were under the rule of the Romans. And so with that tension in mind, these hypocrites bring this woman before Jesus, hoping to get him into a tension that will cause trouble. But as I look at this passage, I'm reminded that every time we look in the law, listen, every time we look in God's holy law, every time, every time we look in God's holy law, we find ourselves guilty. All of us. Romans 3 and verse 20 explains, by the law... 
is the knowledge of sin. The law was not given so that we could keep it and go to heaven. The law was given so that we could look at it and see our hopelessness. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Even a cursory review of the Ten Commandments will find all of us guilty. The Ten Commandments, we ought to know them well. We're to have no other gods before the God who created us. We're to create no graven images, no icons, no images that would replace the image of God that is painted for us in Scripture. We're not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain, not even to use the familiar phrase that our culture is so filled with, OMG. No, no taking of the name of the Lord our God in vain. We're to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Have you set apart a day of the week consistently to serve your God? You're to honor your father and mother. No disobedience is tolerated. No dishonoring is tolerated. We're not to kill. We're not to commit adultery. We're not to lie. We're not to steal. We're not to covet. How you doing? I know I can say guilty, guilty, guilty. I'm guilty. Even the Apostle Paul would review the law and say, I never knew myself to have lied. I'd always kept the Sabbath. I'd never taken the name of the Lord in vain. I'd honored my parents. But when I came to that tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, the Apostle Paul said, I found myself guilty. And the Bible reminds us in Numbers 15 and verse 28 that the soul that sinneth it shall die. The wages of sin, you see, is death. And one violation of the law, listen, one violation of the law makes us guilty of all. And there's none righteous, not even one. How blessed then to see in this passage the compassion of the Savior as it's revealed. John 8 and verse 6, Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote in the ground as though he heard them not. Our sinless Savior is not moved by the standards of righteousness imposed by the world and the religionist of the world. He's not moved by them. We read in verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said unto them, he that's without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. Then verse 8, and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Years ago, people were selling bracelets, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's a worthy question that ought to be asked every day in all of our decisions. In this situation, we don't have to ask, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do if he met someone who had been exposed as a great sinner? What would Jesus do if he met me in my sin and you? What would Jesus do? Well, I look in this passage and I discover that Jesus bowed down. Well, Pastor Phelps, what does that show me? It shows me that the one who is totally without sin, who alone is qualified to be the judge of every sinner, for the Father judges no man but has committed all judgment unto the Son, he stoops down in verse 6. He does it again in verse 8. We're learning something here. Did you know that every time, listen, every time in the Gospels, when Jesus the Savior meets a sinner, He's every time presented and pictured as approachable, as kind, as gracious, and as loving. When he came to town and Zacchaeus had climbed up into the tree, Zacchaeus, who'd been ostracized by his community, he was a tax collector. You hate that guy. 
especially this time of year. Jesus saw him. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house for dinner today. When the woman of ill repute came to the Lord and washed his feet with her tears, Jesus so approachably, so lovingly, so kindly, spoke to the religionist in the room, they that are whole need no physician. But this one, who having been forgiven much, she loves much, as she washes my feet with her tears. In this passage in John 8, this woman having been caught in adultery, meets the one who will one day judge her in eternity. And he bows down. What a lesson for us to learn. Why? Why does he do it? Because he wants us to know he's a friend of sinners. He wants us to know that he came from heaven on a mission. And the mission was to provide a pathway for forgiveness for all who will come to him. And he wrote in verse 6 and verse 8. Both verses tell us that he's writing. Now we don't really have any idea what he's writing in the sand. Perhaps he was writing the woman's name in order to demonstrate for her and for her eyes his omniscience. Perhaps he's writing out the Ten Commandments so that those that he's about to ask, if you're without sin, cast the first stone, can review them and find themselves also guilty. We don't know. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 3 says, They that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Perhaps he's writing that very verse, Jeremiah 17, 3, because after all, he just stood up during this Feast of Tabernacles and invited all to come to him, come unto me and drink, he had said. We don't know what he wrote, but we do know this. Jesus certainly clarifies this situation. When he says in verse 7, He that's without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And They that heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning in the eldest, even in the last, verse 9 tells us. All of her accusers were themselves guilty. Every one of them. And so it is today. Friend, if we look around, if you look around, and think that somehow... You can be justified before God because, after all, you're not as bad as that guy. You failed to realize that before God, James chapter 2 says in verse 10, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. Before God, all of us stand guilty. Friends, listen, none of us are really ready to minister in a corrupt culture until we're clear about this. Until you're clear and can say clearly, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. Then you can't serve, you can't serve, you can't serve. You can't show the love of Christ until you can identify with the crowd that's round about this dear lady. The psalmist says in Psalm 148 and verse 5, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He's slow to anger and great in mercy. John chapter 8, we discover the purpose of our Lord's earthly mission laid bare. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his purpose. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Romans 5 and verse 8 reminds us that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus came to rescue sinners. Even the woman 
taken in adultery. If you find yourself right now in a leaking rowboat, with two oars in the middle of the ocean, and a Coast Guard helicopter came overhead. You're in a le- Did I say it was a leaking rowboat? Yes, it's a, a leaking rowboat. And there's a helicopter overhead, and that helicopter with a loud speaker speaks down and says, we've come to rescue you. You're in the middle of the ocean after all. We're going to drop a basket. All you need to do is get into it. What are you going to do? Grab the oars or grab the basket? Well, I hope you'd have the wisdom to grab the basket. Would you be frightened? Absolutely. Listen, folks, Jesus came down from heaven on a heavenly mission to rescue us. He died on a cross for our sins so that we could be free and live with Him forever. Ever. And He's given us instruction. Whoever will come to me, He said, I will in no wise cast them out. And that includes you and includes me. Praise the Lord. On the 15th of January back in, 20, in 2009, Captain Sullenberger became very famous because he was flying an airplane out of New York City with 150 souls on board and three crew members. You remember the story how he put that plane down on the Hudson River? At 3.31 in the afternoon, he put the plane down on the Hudson and he immediately told the people on board to get into the slides that could also serve as life rafts and get out onto the wings. It was 3.31 in the afternoon, and by 3.55 in the afternoon, 24 minutes later, every single person, 153 people, were all rescued. It was a miracle, folks. As long as airplanes fly, everyone will look back on that particular moment and say, that was amazing. He directed the passengers into the rescue slides. He directed the passengers to climb out of the wings. He knew what he was doing. He gave them a direction that would bring them salvation. Even so, when Jesus looked down from heaven on our sinful condition, he did not stand idly by. No, he left heaven's glory on a rescue mission to rescue us from hell. And the simple words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died in your place. He took the burden of your sin. He was buried and he rose again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you think you've gone too far, if you think the distress and the duress is too much around you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Bible says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that includes you. That includes the person that you think least able to ever be brought out of the terrible trench into which they've fallen. Notice how this story ends. The woman who now stands alone before Jesus experiences the cleansing of the sinner. In a brief conversation between the Lord and this lady, there's healing and there's hope. When he had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. The woman was brought before Jesus expecting death. You can all understand what's going to happen, right? She leaves Jesus with a whole new life. In Romans chapter 8, we read in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, we read, If God be for us, who can be against us? I have news for you this morning. It might be shocking to some here. Listen carefully. The story of John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11 is my story. No, not that I was taken in adultery. 
but it's all of our stories. All of us completely corrupted by sin. All of us completely condemned by sin. All of us under the condemnation of the law. All of us, by the blessing of God, can know the cleansing of a compassionate Savior. There's not a friend, you see, like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. None else can heal all our soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. On the day that the divine master met the defiled maid, he displayed his care for sinners, for you and for me. Let me ask you a question. Do you care for others who are caught in their sin and soon will be caught by it even eternally? Do you quickly condemn without showing Christ's compassion? Are you part of the crowd of the religionists who find yourself comfortable in conversations, sharing how corrupted our culture has become without realizing that there by the grace of God go all of us? Do you find yourself this morning looking into this passage and saying that's what we need today because it is what we need today? We need an army of Christians that would be willing to go out in this world and instead of seeing alternative lifestyles and shying away, entering in and saying, Jesus saves. We need an army of Christians who recognize in every situation that they encounter that Jesus still provides forgiveness. He's still the Christ of compassion. And so may we, by God's grace, be instrumental in bringing others to Christ, whom to know is life everlasting. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.